Welcome to The Best Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Bradley H. Werrell, and we're here to explore options and potentials to help us grow as individuals and as a community with one another in these difficult times and challenging times. We're exploring all manner of potentials related to the human experience, physical, psychological, medical, spiritual. It's a wonderful opportunity that we now experience in this critical phase of our human evolution. And I welcome you to join us in our podcast, become more aware and identify with people who are helpful and supportive of you in your efforts as a human being on this planet and elsewhere too. We're going to be meeting people who are doing things that are widely variant from what is so-called normal within our society. In the creative space, within the social space, our common purpose, seeking to generate positive potentials to improve the lives of everyone in our sphere of influence and to expand that sphere of influence so that we may positively influence others that are not yet engaged directly with us. That's the goal here. We will learn more about each other as we go. I wish you the very best. Thank you very much for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of The Best Medicine. I'm your host, Bradley Werrell, and I'm fortunate enough to be sitting with Iona Italia, a fabled literature professor that now writes. I don't know what else to say about that, but perhaps you can <laughs> illuminate us all. Um, yes, well, I left uh, academia in 2006. I used to be, um, I used to teach uh, English literature, 18th century English literature. And uh, I worked as a professional dancer and dance teacher uh, for about 11 years. And uh, after which, um, I, I began working as a freelance writer, uh, editor, and translator. Um, and my main job is as the copy editor of ARIO magazine, which is an, um, a, a digital magazine of socio-political commentary. And uh, yes, that's who I am. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's like, um, I, I, I was uh, pretty probably uh, maladapted for... Uh, higher education back in the day of um, when I was in college. I got out of college in 1985, the geology degree. And I did not understand English literature as a, as a, a formal study. And so you, you went down the, the, this pathway, which is like so um, anti-pragmatic. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, I yes. <laughs> I'm a country doctor, and I'm a very pragmatic individual, and I like study Arrow magazine. I was looking at it, and I'm like, very interesting cultural articles. Ario, Ario, Ario. Excuse me. <clears throat> it is. It is. It's. It's cultural in a way that I'm uncultured. <laughs> um, well, I think that I have always been attracted to. Um, the um, the exciting over the pragmatic, and I've always been somehow fatally drawn to things that do not make any money. 
That's interesting. So the, the, what's interesting is I, I began studying what happened to America about five years ago. And, and I came across the works of literature professors who are doing work of eminently practical value, which was a surprise to me. Also surprising to me is the amount of writing that they can create. I'm, I'm relatively few words myself, and it's like I, I, I one literature professor, E. Michael Jones, he writes faster than I read, I think. <laughs> it's stunning to <laughs> me. I just find it stunning. It's like amazing um, prolific nature of writers. And I think the academics are better at it than um, everybody else. Um, well, I, yes, I think that depends. So um, in my own case, if I'm writing an article, um, it really it really depends on the nature of the writing. So the kind of thing that we publish in ARIO is mostly um, really opinion pieces. Um, we do publish some articles that are uh, what I call science communication. So scientists who are writing about some concept or discovery for a general audience. Um, we have some of that and we have quite a lot of academics um, writing for us, writing about um, specific things in history or philosophy that interest them. Um, but I think that the largest, the, the bulk of our um, magazine is um, opinions on politics, on particular aspects of politics. And um, usually when, when I'm writing an article of that kind, I've written a number of, of um, political sort of op-ed style articles myself. When I'm writing an article of that kind, it's usually because there is something on my mind that I've already been thinking about. So by the time I come to write the article, it's pretty much already all laid out in my head. And so um, I think that the my record was it took me one hour to write um, a short article I wrote uh, about Indian independence for Indian India's Independence Day a couple of years ago. I, and I remember just, um, you know, these were all thoughts that I'd had and things that I'd said already just in conversation. So it, it was really just a question of pretty much writing them down and um, thinking about precise, exact phrasing as I went along. But if I'm commissioned to write an article, or if it's the kind of article that requires more research, then it can really take a long time. I think the longest article, the longest I spent in an article was a long, a, a book review that I did of Darren Brown's book. It's called Happy. And it's, um, that book contains a history of the Stoics. So to review it, I felt that I had to do quite a lot of research about um, Stoicism and, and um, the kind of uses of Stoicism in self-help books, etc. And it took about three weeks for me to write that review. Also, it's quite a long book in itself. So about <laughs> a week of that was reading the book. Um, 
when I say three weeks, I don't mean full time because I, I am always doing other things as well, but maybe on a kind of four hours a day schedule. So that's a lot of hours that oh, go yeah. into it. Yeah. So what, um, what it interests me, like, I think yesterday or the day before I watched a video on Edgar Allan Poe as an American, uh, in, in American literature in the context of, uh, culture like culture wars in the early 19th century which had never had occurred to me in a million years mm. and i found it to be quite interesting which is unexpected because i generally am not interested in such things you know like but it was an interesting um like to project the mind into the space of the literature people are generating culture and and perhaps self-consciously so and i thought that was interesting because it was unexpected, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, is that how you see this process occurring with regard to Ariel? Um, sorry, I'm not sure what you mean um, by the the process. How, uh, you, how I see so, the process occurring? Um, <coughs> see, intentional um, cultural enrichment. Um, intentional cultural enrichment. Um, Hmm. Um, well, I think that in a sense, if you're, when you're writing an article, what you're trying to do is draw attention to something that you think people's, uh, people are not focusing on or not focusing on sufficiently. Um, so there are two way, there are two reasons why you might want to, an article is just look, look over here, look. Um, and, um, there are, well, there are a number of reasons why you might want to draw someone's attention to something. And one is that you think it's politically pertinent. Um, but another is that you just think it's a, an interesting, fun thing that they don't know about and that therefore knowing about will enrich their lives. Um, so I guess that's the cultural enrichment side. This article um, on Edgar Allan Poe was it was a specifically related to, it appears to be um, a conflict between um, guys like Emerson, who he, the, the projection of the, of the speaker was that these were being supported by um, anti-American actors in England at the expense of American, um, American literatures coming from the likes of Poe, which I thought was quite weird. It's like it's like a, like a counterintelligence function at work. And it, yeah, um, I I did I did edit that article, but you have to um, know that I edit at least five articles a day, and I've probably oh, done it more than a hundred. Oh, I'm not trying then. to press you at so all. I, I, don't, like I don't remember it in in um, in huge detail right now, um, and that's not my field of study so i can't really say very much about oh, yeah. that no i'm not trying to press you like that but it's about it, the, what the interesting function of it was this is that it appears that there's a the, the creation of literature is related to the uh projection into the public space of underlying themes and um overarching themes that are quite 
intimately related to, to the, I guess, the life of the nation in a way that I never really thought about, which is kind of, it's interesting. And I'm like, but so, so like I say, I, I was quite ignorant of literature. I scrupulously avoided it in undergraduate, which is like, well, I don't know. I could, I didn't understand the value of it, I suppose. Uh huh. <laughs> and so, so now I'm like this. I'm, 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 I'm interested in, in the, this. It's, it's, it's to generate interest in the thing you pointed at, or, or where, 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 how do you get paid for that? Is the question. Is the pragmatic part of me going like this? It's like, well, that's frightening. Oh, I see. Well, you know, I don't. I mean, I don't primarily work as a freelance writer. Very few people do. Um, I, I mean, I work as an editor and I occasionally write pieces for ARIO and I'm working on my own book. Um, I think that, so um, the answer to that question is um, that there are a very small number of people who are employed by legacy media, by print media, increasingly, increasingly small. Um, and then there are a lot of people who write, um, then there are uh, some online publications, most of which are not, are not, um, are not profitable. Um, but a couple of them are profitable enough that they're able to pay their writers what is considered a fairly decent amount within this sphere. So um, at Quillette, for, Quillette is probably the most successful at the moment, and they pay writers um, 300 Australian dollars. I'm not sure how, that, how much that is in US, maybe 200 US dollars per piece, um, which is not that much if you bear in mind what I told you about how long it can take to write a piece. If it took you three weeks to write that piece, that is really not a lot of money. Um, so even that is a nominal amount. Um, and at ARIA, we pay about half of that. Um, so people's motivation generally for writing for these kinds of smaller publications is not financial. People write because, well, I would say about <clears throat> three quarters of those who write for us are academics and they want to write about something that is of interest to them or that seems important to them in a way that is more engaging and, read and readable. Um, because when you write for an academic journal, you're expected to write in this completely turgid style that no one in the world enjoys reading. And that is almost incomprehensible even to other people in your field. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it is. Um, that is not fun for anybody. Nobody does that except um, because they have to. The question of why they should have to is another question. I think it's a completely ridiculous, a whole completely ridiculous uh, onanistic scheme. But anyway, they want to write in a more engaging style and reach a broader audience. So, um, or they want to write on something that's outside their, their official field of expertise, but which they know something about. So that is the, that's about three quarters. The other quarter is people who are just, um, feel strongly about a specific issue 
or want to introduce people to something that they love, like a favorite author or artwork, um, or um, scientists who are passionate about um, raising public awareness of issues in science. And therefore, their motivation is not to get paid. Their motivation is to get their work out there and be read. Um, and then there are a small number of very popular journalists, most of whom have been in, in the field um, for decades, who have made enough of a name for themselves that they can live off their substack. So they have a, um, a, um, they have a paid newsletter for subscribers. And in order to live off that, you only need a quite small number of subscribers. You know, if people are paying you $10 a month on a regular basis, you don't need that many subscribers in order to live off that. Um, and there are unfortunate ramifications for that, which is that generally the writing in people's substacks is better than the writing that's publicly out there in something like the New York Times. The New York Times writing is nothing like a as high quality as most of the writing in Substacks, but you will only ever read the writing there if you are subscribed to that specific person Substack. I, that's probably a much longer answer to your question than you required. But <laughs> no, you it's okay. It's, it's interesting because it is like how, you know, um, I'm I write. Getting I, a sweater. <clears throat> I write a bit, yeah. and and it, it and it's like, but it's like. It's a trick is, is designing the, the piece to match the um, intended audience and the, and the uh, projected outlet. And I have not even come close to, to putting it anything into the public sphere. Um, I don't think there's, I don't think it's really necessary to match the piece to the specific audience and outlet. Um, I mean, unless you are some kind of political pundit and what you're trying to get is votes or support for your party or something, um, it doesn't, it, I actually feel it doesn't make sense to try to spin a piece in that way. Um, you should just write as clearly and engagingly as possible. Good writing is very rare. I mean, we only publish about 5% of submissions. And even in that case, what you see in the published magazine is often very different from what was submitted to us. So things are, oh, are quite frequently, yes, are frequently heavily edited. And they're edited for clarity and concision of language. So they're edited to make them read better. The content, it's not to change the content or the the tone. Um, so I would say that it's, um, I don't think it's really necessary to think in terms of specific audiences for specific publications. Um, I think it's, most places are just happy to get good quality writing. Yeah, I was kind of thinking of it in terms of like uh, academic journal versus uh, Oh, journal. yeah. Well, basically, yeah, don't write for an academic journal unless you have to. Um, and I got that so, one. <laughs> God help you. <laughs> so it is interesting because it is like, well, okay. 
and it is to, gearing it to, toward a, um, I'm a, interested in the more general audience, the, the people at large, and it's like, it is, uh, it is fascinating. And I, I enjoyed, I was looking over the Aerial magazine and I, I spotted this, your, your uh, articles related to um, letter writing. I thought oh, that was yes. intriguing. I like that a lot. Thank you. And it's like, a, as, a, as an, a form, that seems to be gone the way of the email, you know? Mm. Which is yes. unfortunate. It's unfortunate, I think. But I don't know what to say beyond that. It's like, I haven't, I haven't finished reading these articles, so I don't want to claim to know more than I do. But I think, it, I think the art form of writing letters is, is interesting because it's a form of communication that is the electronics have, have put it on the back burner, I guess, in the, at, at, it's interesting because it's like there's an impermanence to the digital and electronic means of communication that is um, lost. And so, and it's like, we don't, it makes it more flippant or something like that, the communications. Um. Yes, not necessarily flippant. I mean, it could be also formal, but it's just—it's just very brief. I mean, it's just functional and um, pragmatic. Pragmatic, um, not necessarily. I think it's just that each person's thoughts are ver are expressed very briefly. It's a—it's a—it's uh, an interchange of sentences rather than of longer, more developed pieces of thought. So when people want to write, when people want to think about and write something at more length, well, most people just don't. Um, or if they're going to, they write an essay or an article or something. But um, they don't ruminate at length. Ordinary people no longer ruminate at length in kind of, in, in some private forum, or very rarely. And I think something is lost in that. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, it will be interesting to, um, and I don't know if it could be done, which is what is what difference has has occurred in the last hundred years, you know, the way we write. Like, you know, on the average person, how much actual writing they performed in, in communication with other like family members or it just seems like it was much more common in the past, but that may be a mis mistake. Uh, no, it definitely was. Um, I mean, um, partly because distances, it was less easy to bridge distances. And also you didn't have other ways of communicating when you were apart. Um, it's, only, it's only quite recently that international phone calls have even been affordable. Um, that's something that's happened within the last 20 years. So um, before that, if you want to talk to somebody at length and they, you are far apart, you, you didn't have many other options. And pe people will always take the easiest option. I mean, that's the entropy of social life. <laughs> um, so, oh, 
uh, it's easier to talk than it is to write all your thoughts out in a letter and it's more convenient to get an immediate response than to have to wait for the post to take your letter to the person and bring their response back. Um, so of course that is the way that we did things when we didn't have any other good option for communicating with those who are far, far apart. Oh yeah. It is an interesting one. Like we, we like our dopamine fast, right? So you get, your, um, when you're having a communication, you get quick response. Well, we are a social, we are social apes, you know, we like to, we like to interact directly um, rather than, rather than with time and distance between us. Right. I mean, at the moment, most of us have, certainly in this country, we've been on lockdown for nearly a year now. Hmm. So most people um, haven't seen most of their friends and family for almost a year in person. But of course, people haven't returned to writing letters. They have just Zoomed and Skyped. And, uh, and we're also talking to each other now over Zoom, rather than you writing me a letter and my replying and um, building up, us building up a volume of correspondence. Yes, yes. It's very interesting. So, so uh, I don't know, is it, it, we, we, there, there's an author that I work with, he's a, he's a psychological professor in James Madison University, um, Greg Enriquez is his name, and he writes about this um, form of like consciousness that is occurring now with the development of the digital as opposed to the analog. So we were working in analog up till maybe 25 years ago, 20 years ago even, and now we're doing this digital, and it is the expression of consciousness through the digital that, that is the, it's a opening up like a blossoming field that has yet to be understood even by us as we participate in it, which is, it's an interesting premise because it is like the, you know, the creation of the printing press 1500 and then the the flourishing of of expression you know as we moved away from handwrite or hand copied pieces into mass product produced analog pieces now to digital which is just uh exponentially greater proliferation of copies i guess is the right way to think about it and what does the significance of that in how we interface with one another and, and understand uh, what we know. It's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. I, I saw it with, with regard to Aereo is, is um, it's like they, about the late 80s, early 90s, there was a start to be a proliferation of um, niche magazines that were very well targeted for small groups of people. Mm -hmm. And then, then the, 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 the digital opened up and it's like now, now there's a wide array of, of people working to uh, express their interests in a digital form that is uh, like the fragmentation of that to the, to the nth degree. Right, yes, of course. And that's interesting. I, like, I, I don't know, it's like, I just kind of like this. It's, uh, it's all... Um, it's like cantilevered 
self-expression into this digital sphere and the people can support themselves doing it, which is like a marvel to me. Uh, yes, al almost no one can support themselves doing it. Um, that's like not point not 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 one percent uh, of people. Um, but yes, there are some people who support themselves simply by um, publishing their writing, as I mentioned on Substack. Um, or there are people who support themselves completely from their podcast. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of Jesse Single and Katie Herzog's po po podcast is, I think now making them, um, well, I think it's making um, around $20,000 a month. So that's 10,000 each. Um, that's that's a, a very, I mean, that's a hell of a lot more than I earn. <laughs> um, and um, uh, I don't mean to begrudge them. I think it's a great podcast. I'm really happy to know that that's possible. Um, and there are also some people who are making a living from YouTube. Um, a friend of mine is making a living from, from YouTube entirely. Her channel is entirely focused on how to spend less money on makeup and um <laughs> that's amazing get greater use and enjoyment out of the makeup you have and so she has videos on topics like um you've seen this particular makeup look that you want to emulate but you think you might need to buy new makeup products to do that and she shows you how you can reproduce a similar kind of look and get inspired from makeup you already have that's so that seems like a really niche market right uh she has uh, um so she um um she supports herself and her she and her boyfriend both live off this youtube channel he does the technical stuff and and she um, creates the recordings and it's just her sitting talking to the camera and putting on makeup it's um, amazing, but very practical. Well, in a, in a sense, it's practical. Yes, I mean, I think that most people who, I imagine, having watched her channel, that most people, many people are watching, aren't actually going to do the makeup looks. They just enjoy hearing her chat and philosophize. <laughs> That's what I find funny because I I I've. I, I kind of observe myself um, observing YouTube, right? And I found myself oddly attracted to videos of guys going in the woods with a piece of a tarp and a stake, and <laughs> just camping out in the snow. I'm like, that's utterly ridiculous. How interesting that I find that amusing. Well, people tend to fall into rabbit holes on YouTube and they just, and of course, the algorithm encourages you and it can be very fun. So, I mean, I enjoy watching music videos and it's um, in that if you do that, YouTube suggestions are are really helpful because you just you um, thanks to YouTube. You can just go on watching the same kinds of videos that you already enjoy all day long. And people often have very niche interests which are not unconnected to their real life interests. Um, but once you go deeply into, if a topic interests you even a little, and then you start going deeply into it, it's a, there's a 
self-perpetuating motor to interest mm -hmm. because um, very often the more profoundly you explore something, the more nuance you discover and the more obsessed you become. And <laughs> YouTube certainly encourages that kind of, that, that kind of obsession. Um, it asks you, you know, would you like to watch another 20 videos of guys putting up tarpaulins in the woods in the snow? Um, I mean, your testosterone levels must have shot through the roof by now <laughs> after all of this. I just find it funny. It's like the guy's out there and he forgot his pepper. He's like, oh. <laughs> I think you have to, I mean, there must surely, you are the doctor. There must surely be adverse effects to too high testosterone. So I think you should watch my friend's makeup videos just to kind of get the levels back down, get to a better state of balance. It's on this thing that the, the, the interesting thing is this is, is, is about free speech and these private platforms. Does that make you um, have apprehension at all? The limit oh, yes. Yes. I mean, um, the people, the, um, the point of a platform is the audience. So a platform is not helpful, is not useful to anyone unless a lot of people are on that platform. So um, therefore you don't, you can't really build your own alternative platform. Um, even if you're a very powerful company as Google dis discovered when they tried to launch Google Plus, Google Plus didn't work because for it to work, have worked, a substantial number of people would have to have signed up. I mean, a lot of people. But when people signed up and they found there were fewer people on Google Plus than there were on Facebook, and therefore their posts didn't have a, enough audience, they just stopped using it and the whole thing collapsed. Mm. Um, and that minimum number is quite high because it needs to be able to compete realistically with the platforms that are already out there. So therefore, um, you know, in theory, you could be kicked off YouTube and um, put your videos on Vimeo instead, but nobody watches Vimeo. So you would have to be satisfied with showing your video to 12 people. And anyone who really has something that they feel is important to say, um, or who does anything artistic wants to share it. The point is, is the point is the platform is a vehicle for sharing things. And if there's no one there to share it with, it's pointless. Right. So therefore, there really isn't a good alternative to these monopoly platforms: Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, um, and etc. And it is. Um, and you can very easily, however, get banned from those platforms. And if you are banned, there's no, there's no easy appeals process. Um, there's no one you can contact. Um, you don't really have, you, you don't really have any, uh, redress. I believe you don't have any legal redress. And the process is completely non-transparent. You won't even know. You can just wake up tomorrow and all your accounts are barred. Mm. Um, and, um, and I think that a lot of people are very heavily dependent on those platforms for their income. 
because um, really those are the only efficient means of advertising um, nowadays. Most people aren't watching TV anymore. Well, we watch TV, but we watch it, of course, pre-recorded with the adverts removed. So I haven't seen a TV advert in maybe at least a decade. <laughs> Neither have I. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, and I also, I mean, I listen to the radio stations also on, on Spotify. I haven't heard radio advertising in a long time. Um, and I don't, and I rarely read print media. I mean, I read books, but I don't, books don't have <laughs> adverts. Um, in fact, my Kindle does have adverts, but only for other books. Um, so if you want to share your, uh, share what you are doing, um, if you want to advertise your business, then really the main routes now are advertising it on YouTube and on social media. And that's true even for non-intellectual property style businesses, even for your little florist shop. But it's, def it's even more true for intellectual, um, intellectual businesses, i.e. for writing and, and things, like, things like that. Um, and therefore, if you are debarred from that site, those sites, it makes it very hard to uh, make a living. It makes it very hard to sustain your livelihood. Um, and so we're all, all a little bit scared and that causes people to self-censor, of course. But it's also um, so arbitrary and often it's based on al algorithmic things that are very, very, very crude tools. Like they found a specific word in there, like, I don't know, boobs or something and then suddenly your account is is closed forever um there's no uh the algorithm cannot cannot detect context it doesn't know if something is ironic can't tell if you're quoting someone else um so and so i think that it's very and how the algorithm is managed and how all these things are managed is dependent on the powers that be in Silicon Valley who are running those companies. Therefore, we have really placed our placed public speech and the public dissemination of ideas in the hands of these private companies. Um, and we're not, we do not require them to respect any, any free speech norms at all. So um, they are able to do things like debar the citizens of entire countries from their using those platforms um, because of the authoritarian governments. They also do things like supply names to governments uh, of dissidents, etc. Yeah. All of this is very, very problematic. In the West, that isn't so relevant, but in the West, what can happen is that you can be debarred from the platform. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that is, that, that is a major concern. And we have seen recently that when, when other platforms try to create a more, um, a, um, even, even when Par Parlay, the, the platform, um, started, which supposedly created a more um, welcoming, atmosphere for 
uh, or a freer, a, f uh, a more rigorous adherence to free speech principles. I believe this isn't what they actually did on that platform, but that was supposedly their, their aim. Um, they were shut down. And I think that the most, most worrying thing is that the platforms have now begun acting in, con in concert. So certain people have found themselves banned from, from a whole panoply of platforms. And at the moment, those are mostly very unpopular people. So we don't care because we don't like those people anyway. But of course, it is, I find the precedent very uh, worrying. Um, so the person who I know had this, one person I know had this happen to her was um, the right-wing pundit Laura Loomer, who I don't think was in any way a positive influence on public life in the marketplace of ideas. Um, but I'm concerned that it happened to a person rather than that it happened specifically to her. And she was debarred from Twitter. And then there was a kind of joint effort and she was debarred from Facebook, YouTube, um, PayPal, mm. Patreon, um, and then she was also banned from Uber, from using Uber and Lyft. Oh. So I, I can, um, I mean, I, I can see why she specifically, um, why there were reasons why she specifically might have been banned. But I'm concerned about these kinds of coordinated bans because that really makes it very difficult for the person to have any outlet for um, public expression. Yeah. And in fact, for being self-employed at all, if you're banned from Patreon, PayPal, et cetera, it's, it's very difficult to imagine how you will earn your living unless you work for a corporation. That's it, that's it. That's the concern. And I guess the other concern is this, it's artificial intelligence interfacing with the human, um, our, our, our ability to acquire information and uh, I guess filter, filter out our experience. Oh yeah, well, deep fakes are coming. <laughs> so yeah. um, I'm always actually astonished by how um, it seems to be very, very deep seated within us as humans to believe people as a default um, and when we're told this is true, I promise you, trust me, those words seem to have a quasi-magical effect. Um, and I notice this, um, I think that that people seem to trust assertions um, and I'm very concerned that this we can't really do without that because you can't spend your time questioning absolutely everything. Right. But at the same time, it's going to make it really difficult to disentangle what isn't, isn't true. Uh, once deep fakes are, are well established. Mm, yeah. Well, I tell you what, it's a very uh, challenging moment we enjoy right now. Indeed. I do appreciate the opportunity to get to sit with you and, and have a nice little conversation. Thank you. Me too.
and I will I will um, study Ariel magazine more thoroughly now that I'm familiarized with it a little bit. <laughs> Good, excellent. I, I'm, maybe I will become cultured in the end. <laughs> I'm sure you already are cultured. <laughs> well, thank you again for sitting with us and. Um, I will look forward to chatting with you in the near future. Thank Dr. you. Italia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Best Medicine Podcast with Bradley H. Werrell, D.O. Don't forget to hit like and subscribe below, either over there or over there. Also, if you're interested in a medical consultation with myself, there's also information below.